Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. I'm your host, Ahmed Hassan. And today, as always, we have a very interesting guest with me is Alec Bertila. Alec is a researcher in Russian security issues, non-traditional security actors. He's following the conflict in Ukraine and in other places where Russian PMCs, probably ones that you've never heard of, are active. Alec, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Alec, in your own words, can you go a little bit in depth, you know, how you got into this, where you started and what you're doing now? Yeah, so I started off doing uh, international security master's at the University of East Anglia. And that's when I sort of really started getting a pulse and interest for Russian private military companies, Russian defense, stuff of that nature. After like graduating, I ended up doing some journalism, some freelance stuff, uh, looking into all sorts of actors. And now I'm mainly focusing on Wagner, but also some other formations and trying to keep a tally of where they are, what they're doing in Ukraine and what they're doing in other countries. All right. Why the interest? Like, wh- why did you focus on this? So a lot of it's a cultural background thing. So on my mother's side, I have some Russian speaking mm-hmm. culture. Also, because I'm American as well, I kind of, that clash of backgrounds made me naturally very interested in geopolitics. So that's kind of what kicked off that interest early. And then later on, it was effectively just being very interested in Russia. Russia's got a very interesting history of subterfuge, of clashes, of surviving numerous wars. And if you're interested in security matters and in the way that they shape cultures, Russia's a pretty good testing ground to like learn about all of that stuff. So that's mainly why I've been pushed into that direction. Okay, interesting. So do you think your, your background and the conversations you, you have at home with your family, does that influence how you analyze or maybe how you judge these conflicts? Does that give you more insight? Does that give you more objectivity or less objectivity? I know it's a difficult question, but... So lived experience is an interesting thing. I'm not of the belief that people are inherently objective. So we can try to do our best. And if we lay out the facts to people and if we lay out our rationale, uh, then we're being quite transparent, right? Because we're showing like what cultural lenses we're looking through things, why we're pursuing the research that we are. So that's sort of how I look at it. Obviously, the lived experience forms certain heuristics and ways of looking at the world. And I'm not going to pretend that that isn't the case. But I try and show that, you know, it isn't just an inkling or a vibe that I'm going off when I'm looking into these things. There are sources of information, <laughs> rationales for yeah. why I'm assuming certain things that come through what I'm reading. Thank you for that answer. Everybody's talking about Wagner, and Wagner is in the zeitgeist at the moment, especially in the West, maybe a little bit late. And we're seeing Wagner's very active and open communications. And for people that listen to the podcast, we have multiple experts on that have spoken about the group as well as about Ukraine, I think we haven't really, I don't think we have enough explored other actors than Wagner, right? So I want to ask you, what is, first of all, what is Wagner's role in Ukraine and how have they influenced the the conflict in Ukraine and where they are today? 
And then, if possible, I would love for you to go into perhaps some of the other actors either connected to Wagner or not, and some of the, the current developments like yesterday on the Gazprom PMCs, or I think the word you, you preferred was a semi-state security formation. Yeah, please, could you go into that? So with Wagner, the reason why it's best to call it semi-state security formation or an informal semi-state security formation, as Gimli Martin calls it, is because it's not really a private entity and for anything security related, it's generally quite hard to have a private security entity in Russia. The state wants to have control over that sort of area of business. And a lot of these organizations, especially Wagner, is very dependent on Ministry of Defense inventories and also GRU training facilities. So that is why I go by that name and that is why I label most organizations like that. In terms of their role in Ukraine, they pretty much do everything. They're a force multiplier. They have an intelligence branch, which is ignored quite often. They have their own command and control structure that does have to report to the MOD somewhat, but it's a lot more autonomous than some people might assume. They also do logistics. They have drone, civilian drone divisions who do ISR, so intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. And they are one of the most assault-capable forces that the Russians have. Uh, they're getting degraded fighting in Bakhmut and some other areas, but they've been more effective than a lot of the Russian military's formations have been or other semi-state security formations. And I would say there's two main reasons for that. One of them is that Wagner has an expanded ability to engage in procurement outside of the MOD's normal procurement sources because fighters know what they want. They tell Prigozhin and they tell someone higher up and then they get it. And the other thing is that a lot of the technology they use is simply not the sort that the Russian Ministry of Defense would want to shell out for. For example, spider helmets, which are helmets that have laser sensors that can identify enemies from, you know, 10, 15 meters away based on, you know, basically laser tracking systems, if that makes sense. Laser or, or infrared? I believe it might be infrared. It might be infrared. Okay. In terms of areas of operation, we obviously mentioned Ukraine. That's where they're probably fueling the biggest force right now. Uh, they need actual divisional capabilities. They have to basically be in an army in their own right. But they're doing counterinsurgency in most other places, along with some intelligence work and some psychological warfare stuff. They're in Burkina Faso. They were in Mozambique. It's hard to know how much they're still there. They're in Mali, the Central African Republic, Venezuela. There's been chatter of them being in Nicaragua. They're really all over the place, and that's because they're a much more expeditionary force than the Russian army itself is. There's a lot of incentive with using Wagner as an expeditionary force because there was some deniability in their connection with the Russian government. That's kind of gone out of the window now, since Prigozhin's been so public about the connection that Wagner has to Russia when it comes to, you know, using Ministry of Defense inventories to following directives, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's Wagner in a nutshell. So you mentioned Wagner's intelligence unit. Can you go a little bit more about that? So intelligence is going to be embedded on all sorts of levels for Wagner. You obviously have military intelligence guys who are assessing drone civilian ISR in Ukraine, for example. So basically what they've seen with DJI Mavic drones, with all land drones, that sort of thing. 
there's guys uh, identifying what's being seen on satellite images. A while back, there was a Chinese firm that was actually sanctioned that was providing satellite imaging services to Wagner. You also have guys who are doing counterintelligence, looking for moles in Wagner. I think the US leaks identified that there are definitely moles within Wagner. And there's yeah, also people who are just keeping track of journalists who are looking into Wagner, trying to get an assessment of the countries they're operating in in terms of their cultural environment identifying key targets, for example, for counterinsurgency operations. So Wagner has a mini bureaucracy in the sense that it's really got its own quasi-autonomous command structures, bureaucracy of uh, intelligence analysts, that sort of thing. So I wanted to ask you, because, yeah, I've I've come across the capabilities. I think I've I've forgotten, but if if I'm correct, they have... Their intelligence wing has a name, correct? Do you know that? It doesn't immediately come to me, the name, but it does have a chief of staff. So any bureaucracy you can imagine in the military sense within the Russian state is probably replicated on a smaller scale within Wagner. So it would not surprise me if they did have a dedicated intelligence wing and a name for it. Uh, That would match with what I've read about Wagner's uh, structure in general. Yeah. It's now I'm racking my brains because I remember seeing it somewhere and us wanting to do a a report on it. And I think somebody within the team is working on it, but I will have it in the show notes for anybody that we, uh, that we got interested into it because for us as great dynamics, and I think a lot of the people that listen to this podcast, they're interested in intelligence, right? And I would love to explore how, you know, Wagner organizes it because if you look at other non-state actors, or in, in this in this sense, they're not a non-state actor, but if we look at, for example, Al-Shabaab or ISIS, and they have their dedicated intelligence organizations. So in Al-Shabaab, it's Amniat and Emni for ISIS, and you can go through the list, right? But, but that's one thing I was very interested in, but we can come back to that. Obviously, you've mentioned Prigozhin, Putin's chef. I'm interested in, and I think a lot of the people that look at Wagner, uh, some of our friends, our visual friends that look at Wagner, uh, I see them dispelling this all the time. But who is Prigozhin? And is he this mastermind controlling all these parts? And and is he a threat to Putin? Right. So that's a very good question. And it's a topic that's come up a lot. There's obviously a common narrative among some people that Putin's angling for power as president post whatever fallout happens because of the Ukraine war. Um, you mean Prigozhin is? Yes, Prigozhin, yeah. So yeah, Prigozhin is identified as this actor that can take over potentially, but there is a lot of misunderstanding around how Russian society works and Prigozhin's position as a so-called elite. First of all, Prigozhin is more of a custodian of Wagner and a managerial figure within Wagner. He would not have been able to form something like Wagner by himself. He will not have been given some of the keys to it without the explicit desires of the MOD and GRU to use him. And he also would not be given such a powerful army if people within Putin's circle thought that Prigozhin was a threat to Putin. There's also some speculation from some Russian investigative journalists that there is compromise on Prigozhin that would simply render him unable to take power in any scenario. Once this material would get out, it would effectively 
kill any reputation he presently has. So this is an important thing to understand. And the reason why he's so vocal compared to other elites is because he's trying to cement a reputation he doesn't have yet. And he's trying to create himself as an indispensable figure to both Putin and to the Russian uh, pro-war public. But there is nothing to back up any suggestions that he could actually make a run for power. Not at least while Putin is still relatively secure in his power. So there are voices that I think maybe misunderstand what you just said there. And I think when we look at the communications, and maybe a couple of months ago we saw Prigozhin warring with Shoigu, the, the head of the defense in, in, in Russia, and, and lamenting like support from the military. Why is that? So this is interesting. There are a few interpretations of it. The one that I find the most compelling was that Prigozhin Sorovikin, General Sorovikin, and Kadyrov set up an ultra-nationalist triumvirate to try and depose Gerasimov and Shoigu of their existing influence within the Russian Ministry of Defense. Effectively, those three figures thought that they had an opportunity to capitalize off the incompetence of Shoigu and Gerasimov to try and make names for themselves, acquire resources, and to become a more indispensable part of the Russian military nexus, if you will. And what I would say is that people haven't recognized how much this has already failed. It's clear from the multiple times that Peskov, the Russian Kremlin spokesperson, has had to say that, you know, Wagner and the Russian Ministry of Defense aren't fighting, that there's clearly discontent from the Kremlin around how this disunity of command comes across from the outside and what it does to Russia's reputation. The other thing we have to remember is, as I mentioned earlier, Wagner is dependent on the Russian Ministry of Defense's inventories. So to insult the entity that actually gives life to your organization, the ability for it to operate at the scale that it does in combat operations is always a risky play and unfortunately Suravikin well unfortunately for Prigozhin rather Suravikin and Kadyrov abandoned him in this more or less Kadyrov was kind of the first to distance himself Suravikin was demoted after lackluster performances he withdrew forces effectively in Kherson but past that he wasn't able to acquire the reputation that would have kept him at his post and Prigozhin's enemy Gerasimov was appointed in place of Sorovikin to lead the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine so all of these series of failures were catastrophic to any power that Prigozhin might have been able to accrue uh, and show that you know uh, he simply wasn't able to execute that plan to acquire more resources and more influence interesting I think that whole era sparks people talking about like maybe Prigozhin making a play for, for more power and maybe even going after Putin's role, which, you know, we, you and I have talked about a lot and nothing in the evidence suggests that that would be even possible or in the realm of possibilities. And I would also just say that the competition was between the Ministry of Defense and Prigozhin. It was never about who was going to take power in Russia. And this was a misunderstanding. Prigozhin was trying to impress Putin and trying to show he was better at the job than the MOD. This is the only reason he started this thing. He doesn't want to antagonize Putin. He doesn't want to go after his throne. It's about actually impressing him 
and accruing resources through impressing him. And I think that is what people mm. really missed, in my opinion. Interesting. I, I agree with you on that one. So, while talking about Wagner also, some people say, some researchers say that another group, far-right, for some reason far-right is, is, has become a very polarizing term, or let's even go further and say, you know, a Nazi sympathizer group, Rusik, is portrayed to be, like, I don't know if it's true or not, but to be like some sort of a, like, recon sabotage unit of Wagner. Others say it's a completely on its own thing. Do they sit within the Wagner structure and is that their role? Is that not true? What, what is your opinion on that? What does your analysis say? So they definitely have a connection. And whether we like it or not, research are clearly full of pretty effective motivated fighters. And unfortunately, radical ideology can make you especially effective as a fighter if you're genuinely motivated by aggressive action by your state. There's also the, f the fact that there is a revolving door around pools of personnel that you will get from the Russian Imperial Movement, Rusich, the Russian Imperial Legion. Uh, these sort of organizations always orbit around PMCs or semi-state security formations, which will be more accurate. So there is definitely a connection. I think his name is Andrei Milchakov, who is one of the co-founders of Rusich. I believe he did accrue experience in something like Wagner or another formation. And there's clearly cooperation on some level, or there was for a while. But you're right to say that they are autonomous to some degree from each other. And that also Wagner does have its own chauvinistic right-adjacent ideas and quite stated racist overtones within its membership. To say it was an outright Nazi organization like Rusich would be inaccurate. I think it's also not unique for uh, guys even in the Western sphere of like private military companies to have some pretty staunchly right-leaning views. After all, why would they get into that business? Why would they join an uh, infantry in the first place, right? Like, this is the sort of natural hub that appeals to people of that ideological temperament. So the fact in Russia that there's, you know, more intolerant attitudes in certain areas will necessitate that there will be quite radical views in even something like Wagner, which still isn't explicitly Nazi in itself. So I think that's very much worth keeping in mind when people try and identify any ideological connection that Rusich and Wagner might have or any military connection. There was the motivation for the invasion to say to denazify Ukraine. Yes. Very ironic. The other, I mean, we can do like three podcasts about the, the, the semi-state security formations or PMCs in, in Ukraine. But the other one that I'm very interested in, you and I have been talking about for a while, and has recently also been sanctioned by the U.S. government. I'm talking about Patriot. But before I go into that, there's a lot of PMCs that are trying to make a name for themselves in Ukraine, making videos, you know, very slick ones sometimes. And some of them are fake. Some of them are disinformation ops. And some of them are, should not be taken serious. But I think when you get sanctioned is when you when you arrived as a, as a, as a semi-state security actor, particularly connected to Russia. So Patriot, can you go a little bit into that one? I think that's, I think we find Patriot probably more interesting than, than, than Wagner. So Patriot is 
a scary beast in that we know very little, and unlike Wagner, they are not so obnoxious in their social media presence. We have a patch that's been identified by some researchers of a dog. I think the insinuation is that they were, given this is Shoigu's formation, uh, the minister, Russian minister of defense's formation, the dog is supposed to symbolize loyal dogs fighting for the Russian cause. Uh, I believe there's also some connection to one of the first private military formation that formed under Imperial Russia. I believe they use a symbol of a dog as well. So yeah, they're, they're a scary beast that we know very little about them. They're good at information security and operational security. We do know that they've done some work in Syria, mainly site security. They were rather small scale, unlike Wagner. And there are speculations, though I need to look into them, around the idea that Shoigu formed them because he wanted to have a counterbalance to Wagner. In Syria, there are multiple instances where Wagner writes and Prigozhin himself were not communicating what they were really up to. And this is a no-go for the Ministry of Defense because, one, you want to have control over these formations when they're operating in similar areas of operations that you are. And the second thing is that the Ministry of Defense wants a cut of whatever Prigozhin is up to. And one incident that comes to mind was there was a shell company that belonged to Evgeny Prigozhin called Yevropolis, and that was a resource extraction company. And it's quietly, without the MOD's permission, signed agreements with the Syrian, various Syrian government officials and business entities to provide site security in Syria for oil fields. And also, the promise was that if Wagner was able to retake those oil fields for those government actors, that they would be able to get a 50% revenue cut of those uh, resource extractions profits. So this is one of the main reasons Patriot was formed, is that Shogo wanted to counterbalance in something that he had under his control explicitly. And also, and this is again speculative, but this is a common talking point within the Russian hard-right military community, there's also the belief that since Prigozhin has not been, shall we say, kind and soft in his words towards the Ministry of Defense, that there may be great utility in having a formation set up that could absorb Wagner's personnel if Prigozhin and key Wagner leadership needs to be liquidated for being too disobedient, for being a challenge to Putin or the MOD, even though, as we mentioned, Prigozhin isn't a threat right now. There's a possibility Putin may start feeling that Wagner is becoming too much of a negative actor that's trying to stir chaos and trouble for its own agenda. So Patriot could also exist as a means to absorb experienced personnel and to have deposably deniable guys at their disposal. Very interesting. I, I, I read also, I think from a German report, that Patriot was also hired by the UAE government to fight in Yemen. I don't know if you saw that. I did not see that, no. What strikes me most about Patriot is... I, I know it's speculation because I haven't seen documents proving it, but and as you said, they're, they're very disciplined about, you know, the information security and operational security, but that their salaries are very high, you know, compared, not compared to even like Western PMCs, they get, you know, they get really decent salaries. And you and I have, have talked about this before and, and, and the training and the experience of their personnel is much higher than that of Wagner. You can see that also since we haven't really seen any Patriot guy as far as 
has been communicated because we don't know and nobody has been caught by the by the Ukrainians. Maybe they have been, but at least I don't know about that. that's happened. And you and I talked about the fact that it might be that the ranks of Patriot is filled with GRU Spetsnaz, members of KSSO, which is the, 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 the Russian answer to the U.S. Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, and the KSSO is the Russian Special Operations Command with the highest, most experienced and, and best trained and best equipped forces. Do you see that? I mean, do you, I mean, do you agree with that? I mean, I know we talked about this, but, and, and is there any proof of that? So unfortunately with anything KSSO related, there's obviously very little proof. And this would be the same with a lot of units, like actual secretive units. People forget that Spetsnaz and VDV, they're not really special forces by a Western standard. There's just too many of them to be like elite top tier. They're very competent. They're very effective but then not the top of the tip of the spear sort of for the Russian army. And there is a few questions around why their salaries are so high. I mean, we know, for example, with Western PMCs, there's a practice of labor poaching, right? In order to attract very experienced operators from the army, you want to pay very high wages, higher than that of the military. So that's a common practice. What's interesting in Russia is now not only is wage differentiation between different entities determined by PMCs trying to recruit Russian army people into their ranks. But it's also about actually poaching resources from other formations that have been formed by various other actors. So Patriot has to pay more because Wagner, in order to attract people away from Wagner, this is the only way they'll do it. And this is also, I think, Shroika exploiting the fact that he has, mm-hmm. since he controls the MOD, there is no one who's better at being able to source material and all sorts of other things for a formation than him. And if he's going to drag people away from Magna, which is, has proven experience, has high-ranking members, is known to have quite good in command and control structures, this is the only way he'll do it. As to why he's doing this, there is a slightly conspiratorial one, but even oligarchs that have been had their calls leaked, have discussed this, there's people trying to make security arrangements for if things do fall apart in Russia. I think people over-exaggerate and assume that that's a certainty. It becomes a certainty longer this drags on. But right now, it's not so obvious that Russia will collapse. But actors would be wise in Russia to prepare for the possibility of there being a collapse. And having formation that's subordinated under you, using your resources, and basically lapping up any competent special forces guys into your formations is a pretty good way to try and secure things for when stuff you know does go wrong in russia if it goes wrong in russia and i think shoigo might just be doing that as well it wouldn't be unwise of him given that other actors are doing the same thing now that makes sense i think patriot is uh, i think they're flying a little bit under the radar and they're very capable the other one i mean again you know there's so many to go through but the other one that is in the news and that they're named very similar to other organizations doesn't really help, but Redut. What, what is your position on, on uh, Redut and, and who are they and what are they and what's their role? So Redut's history is mainly starting off doing site security in Syria for 
Gennady Timoshenko, he's one of the people connected. He's a stakeholder, I call him, and really do it. I wouldn't call him an owner. There's been descriptions of Tiripaska, Alenti Tiripaska, and Gennady Timoshenko as owners of Lidl. I, I would just like to say that I don't think that's a helpful way of looking at these organizations because those people on their own cannot sustain those formations. They need Ministry of Defense support for that. They might have had the GRU's help with that as well. That's more of a question. But yeah, Rilud started off doing site security for resource extraction operations conducted by Gennady Timoshenko in Syria. What we know about them in Ukraine is that, in the words of their own fighters, they tried to take out the SSU of Ukraine, so the security service, one of the security services of Ukraine. They tried to take them out in Kiev. They deployed from the direction of Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Uh, a lot of people confuse them with Wagner, actually, in that sense. And they know we know that they started out strong, that they sent in language instructors and language teachers in areas that they occupied. But we also know they took a massive beating. They had to withdraw because their attacks in Kiev failed, likely for why, likely for the same reasons why the other attacks failed, which was that U.S. intelligence tipped off the Ukrainians to prepare for it. But yeah, a few were captured on video. A lot of them were not Russian nationals, which was an interesting point. A lot of them were ex-Soviet citizens of other countries, uh, just looking for work. Supposedly they were given sparse details, they were given apartments in Moscow to live in, and then they were deployed in Ukraine pretty soon after that. There's a few other interesting things about Yadur. We know that Prigozhin has tried his best to keep the FSB out of the embedded ranks of Wagner, because he wants to clearly have that separation and autonomy and ability to do stuff he's not supposed to. But Yudut has totally been the opposite around that. An FSB counterintelligence officer who spoke to the Russian investigative journalist Vladimir Sechkin and is now defected to America, he tells of the fact that as a field officer, he was deployed in Zaporizhia with Yudut personnel and also with some separatists to conduct operations. And he was saying that basically, if Ridu wanted something, the Ministry of Defense would provide it. If they needed helicopters, they'd get them. If they needed a, a mass complex of all and civilian drones, they would get them from the MODs, out of the MOD's pocket. And this goes for tanks as well, and all sorts of other things. So the last thing I've heard about Ridu is that they managed to inherit one segment of personnel from the organization Patok, or PMC Stream as like they would be tr translated into English. And what happened was there were three parts of PMC Patok. This gets very complicated, as you'll find. And one third of it was transferred to Yudut for some reason. And we don't know why. Some can speculate that the MOD is doing funny business to try and reallocate resources and to break up these formations and to make things confusing. But either way, one third of Patok went back to Yudut and then some of them were captured by Ukrainians and there's prisoner of war footage of them sort of being questioned for who they are, what they're doing. And yeah, so just another thing on the key actors, Gennady Timoshenko is, I believe, a Finnish citizen. So he's not just a Russian citizen, he's a Finnish citizen, which would be interesting for some people to know. And Oleg Dyrabaska was recorded, there was a recording that dropped of one colonel giving a briefing to other personnel of Ridult, and that colonel explicitly said that Oleg Tiripaska went out of his way to buy BTRs and light armored vehicles and heavy weaponry 
for Veridus. So that's the reason why we can connect him to that organization. And that's why I think the State Department has as well. That's a, that's a maze of different groups and, and confusion. One thing I wanted to clarify with you, and you gave me the perfect segue to go into it, Patok, right? And, and Gazprom's use and, and standing up of its own semi-state security actors. And the, the interview that you mentioned of one of the fighters, I don't know if that's the one that you mentioned, but the one that came out this week with the, with the sketchy translation. Can you tell, talk about Gazprom's, because I think there's three of them three units within Fingos Flame, Stream, I'm blanking on the third one. But can you go into a little bit about that? So just to mess with your head more, I think there were autonomous <laughs> quasi-decentralized units in the adult who had different names. Mm-hmm. They potentially have different command and control structures. And these might be the names that you were talking about. Patok also had a number of personnel but it decided to transfer one third of them to Redoop for some reason. And that's what we're trying to figure out is why they did it. So I think when I spoke to you before, we've mentioned this, there's a lot of a revolving door and a sort of a shared pool of finite personnel that are being passed around these different organizations. For example, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, Convoy, a lot of Convoy guys were former Wagnerites who operate in Africa. And one of their commander is a guy called Pikalov, that's his surname, who was pretty high up in the Wagner's command and control structure in Africa. And apparently he commanded a pretty equal tone when he spoke to Prigozhin. So this will just kind of show to you how within all these organizations, what becomes a nightmare is to follow who's going to who, why are they going to different actors, are those actors breaking up, are they forming proxy companies? So, for example, Chivokar Volk, that's been a new one, or PMC Wolf. A lot of people have identified that they're actually being trained in Wagner facilities. A lot of the instructors happen to be Wagner, and one would be skeptical to assess them as being actually a different entity to Wagner at all. So yeah, there is a lot of mess in tracking (laughs) where everyone is going, and some, I think you yourself included, have said that that's a feature, not a bug. At the same time, it's worth identifying that Actors are messy and self-interested in Russia and they're not doing always something to, because they're mm-hmm. very smart and they're doing something as a 5D chess move. They're often just doing it in their raw interest and quite often it stubs the toes of the Kremlin and the Russian state in general. So, yeah, you have to consider all of these factors and try your best to untangle what's going on because it's somewhat by design meant to be quite difficult to figure out. So, yeah, I hear I think that, as I said, as you mentioned, right, that this confusing number of of organizations and units and is, you know, it helps the Russian state also not just to move personnel, but to keep the Ukrainians and and and, and the West or the supporters of Ukraine guessing. And uh, we've seen in the leaks that there is mention of these groups, but the people in them. They, they, they probably only know half of the stuff that's going on. So maybe that, yeah, that I'm not going to say that these people went out of their way and they're double agents and I don't know that. So, but it would make sense. It, it, it helps. And, and as you mentioned earlier, Wagner's, it's not necessarily a Wagner site, but the internet research agency is still very active doing, uh, influence operations and, 
there were reports recently about it trying to be active in Turkey, influencing the Turkish elections and in other parts of, of the world. So, and I think you've mentioned Moldova too. And I think we can do probably another podcast and we should do another podcast on the ones that we didn't talk about. But is there a group before we go into the other segment? Is there another entity that you think or another point that, that still need to be made that you have not had a chance to, to point out? I think there are a number, if that's okay. I could go on all day about it. I promise I won't. But um, there's an, a few things to consider, first of all. Not all of these formations are designed to be serious divisional forces. When I mean divisional, they have artillery divisions. Oh, sorry, they have artillery units. They have infantry. They have armor. They have all the things that you basically need to field a conventional army in a conventional war. Not all of them are designed to be that. Some of these organizations are really small. Uh, I'll give you an example. Igor Altushkin, who is a copper billionaire, made his fortune in extraction of copper, he's got something called a Euros Battalion. This is not a big organization. And this for him, financing this is pocket change. And it's surprisingly easy to set this up. These oligarchs, or elites, how you want to call them, can just find out if they have anyone in their contacts who's had a former Ministry of Defense background, or if they have a former Special Operations background. And then they go up to them and say, hey, do you want to command a unit? Do you want to reach out to any guys you know? Tell them that I'm going to pay a lot of money for you to join this organization and to do basically something on behalf of the Russian government, but also for me if I need something guarded. And this is just how simple it is to set this thing up. So we shouldn't confuse all of these organizations as aspiring to be Wagner-sized. We shouldn't assume that all of these organizations are trying to be big armies. And we also should recognize that for a lot of the actors who are getting involved in this, they're, they're not serious about it and they're just they're dabbling in it because they can't. Because they have the money. Some of these people are filthy rich, right? And for them, this is, again, really, really little amounts, especially if they find someone in the Ministry of Defense who's willing to supply them with some stuff too. Uh, because it might be in the interest of some people in the Ministry of Defense to have these formations set up. This is actually going to lead me to another point. A lot of these formations might not also be designed to be staff of elite personnel. There is a value that's under-discussed around having these formations, and that is, if people die in them, no one's any wiser for it. You don't have to provide information, you're not obligated to provide information, and you can also sign very dodgy contracts, which allow you to not pay out to family members. This is something that's even happened with Wagner for, like, the convicts that have been recruited, right? You'll say to them, yeah, if you join, I'm not going to lie to you, there's a high chance that you're going to die, but we're going to pay out amazing amounts of money to your family if you do. And this sounds really nice, and these guys are like, okay, at least I'm providing something for family, sounds great. What actually happens is in that contract, it says if they're missing in action, or they just go MIA, well, that is missing in action, but also if they just go missing, they're under the radar, or they get captured, in those contracts it says that you don't actually have to pay out to those family members. So what you can simply do is when Wagnerites know that they've lost a band of convicts, they can just pretend that all of them have gone missing in action instead. And basically not pay out to anyone. And also not declare the amount of losses that they're having. And I mentioned PMC Wolf earlier. This is probably how PMC Wolf is being used. There's reports where from like very poor regions of Russia, guys have been recruited, mobilized guys, might I add, that have been assigned to PMC Wolf. They've been given very little instructions by Wagner instructors working for PMC Wolf. And then they have been chucked into Ukraine with no training, no understanding of where they are. 
And, you know, it, if you want to escape the reports that are quite rampant now of mobilized guys being treated very terribly, having very little training, and also of them being killed because of it, these formations are a really good way of avoiding all of that press, avoiding all of the mentions of casualties and all of that. So I think that's an important factor to consider. And I would also say, again, this is verging into conspiratorial territory that there are actors who are selling this narrative for a reason, but some people do want to secure, they want to have an insurance for, like, security, for if things go badly in Russia. And they might not be fielding these units in serious quantities because they really care about contributing to their war effort. Uh, they might be doing it because they want to get those guys some experience and then maybe if they do well, they can expand them in the right areas. And if stuff goes down in Russia, they have a unit at their disposal uh, that's battle-hardened. So, yeah, I would say all of these factors are very worth considering um, for when we're looking at why these formations are being set up and uh, looking out for any new formations that have been mentioned in the news. Fascinating. And as you said, again, you know, we can talk about this for days and days and days. And I think we have done multiple podcasts. We talked about Wagner. I think we we did a great one with a couple of great ones with Marcel Plichta and 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 with Jack Mogolin. I think this is probably one of the most in depth we went into. If not the most in depth we went into, not just Wagner but other PMCs that that we see being mentioned. And there's just so much going on. There's so much information to to process and. And this, you know, this is likely a model of conflicts to come, you know, of the future. What I want to ask you, I know you're still a very uh, young guy, uh, even though you're very experienced in this stuff. If somebody wanted to do what you do, what advice would you give them? So the first thing is to not ignore cultural factors and to ignore understandings of political systems. So I would say, for example, a big problem with people assessing Prigozhin is that they assume things about the Russian system that isn't true. The Putin is so unintelligent that he would assign a massive formation to someone that can't be controlled. I would also understand that, specifically if you're doing anything Russia-related, you have to understand that the system works around this premise of making sure that people's self-interest can be used in ways that are expedient to the state. So, for example, people would ask, why is Wagner still around if it's causing so much of a headache? And why are there so many issues of like this disunity of command that's visible in Russia? And the answer is, is because Putin probably wants some form of competition between these entities. If he can use their self-interest to make them try and perform as effectively as possible, because there's been sloppiness from the MOD, there's just been downright laziness or lack of maintenance of equipment, like pretty elementary stuff. So Putin has decided if there is some form of competition, this might serve the war effort positively. The issue there is that, you know, you have to balance that self-interest in ways that doesn't shoot the Russian state in the foot itself. And again, understanding all of this requires some basis of understanding the temperament of the people that are at the upper echelons of power. It, um, it, it revolves understanding history because... All of this has formed out out of the back of the collapse of the USSR. And all these details, like, they should not be discounted. You shouldn't just be consulting PMC literature and say, oh, right, okay, I guess I can transfer my knowledge to Wagner. It's not that simple. You have to get the cultural context in there. I would also say the obvious stuff is just keep yourself safe. Don't contact people that are, don't want to be contacted in ways that are dangerous. 
this is I know this sounds juvenile and maybe patronizing mm-hmm. to people, but it's a very big point. These dudes who are in these formations running them, they're scary. <laughs> they're scary people. Uh, they've killed journalists in the Central African Republic. They don't want to be found out. So I use a lot of open sources, and there is a lot that you can use there. Speaking to these people who are actually in these formations is not only dangerous, as I mentioned, it can also be stupid in that they, and this is common for a lot of Russian actors, will lie to you about what they're doing. And I've seen this problem very much in journalism where they've like said, oh, we're going to speak to someone in Wagner. We've spoken to someone in Wagner. He's assured us of this and that. And there's a failure to understand that there is an incentive to lie to journalists. There's an incentive to lie to you if you're researching this sort of stuff. I'll give you a good example of this. So it doesn't just seem like I'm making this up. There is a former Wagner commander called Marek Gabdulin, And he was quite big in the press. Uh, because he was the first guy who really came out and said, like, this is how these things work. And he's done a lot of work with another investigative journalist called Vladimir Sechkin. And one thing that people have ignored is that when Murak Abdulin, he was a commander in Syria, of all places, and he fails deliberately to mention the extent of Wagner's cruelty when it was operating in Syria. He's assigned bad instances, for example, the person who was tortured and mm-hmm. beheaded on camera. I think his name was Hamdi Bouti, Balto, or something like that. Marek Abdullah has deliberately tried to understell how cruel Wagner was in that region and tried to label it as a few bad apples. And that's because he's a former Wagner guy himself and he's covering for himself. And I've seen too many journalists not being able to understand that fact and to try and factor it in within their analysis. So that kind of speaks to a second point, which is you actually need to try and get a good profile of the people within these organizations temperament what drives them for example Brigozhin it's ambition it's also the fact that he wants to have more power than he presently has so the reason why he's reaching out for this attention is not because he's already powerful he wouldn't need to do this if he was already so powerful it's to acquire more power the detriment of others because he hasn't got that yet so yeah understanding people is going to help you a lot as well so I would say those two things uh, off the top of my head would probably be the most useful things I could suggest if you want to look into this stuff. Thank you. No, great point. And do you have a question for me? So I always want to try and gauge this with people is um, the balance of ratio between like how likely do you think that these formations are being set up as a security arrangement versus being set up as a plausibly deniable way for the Russian state to act in conflicts? Because I think that's been a raging debate from the people I've spoken to. There's been mm-hmm. a confusion about why they're being really set up. Is the end goal to help in Ukraine or is the end goal something else? It's a great question. If I have to give my professional judgment on that, I would say they they were probably set up as a traditional PMC, but people understood the, the utility of having a that deniable asset, right? And I think, as you mentioned early in the podcast, that... In Russia, there is no, I mean, I think it's even like outlawed to have a PMC, straightforward PMC. It is, yes. Uh, at least when was Slavonic Corps and, and, and Wagner in the early days were coming up. So, and, and also before Wagner, people have to understand that too. Before and after Wagner was set up, there were more traditional PMCs, right? That did personnel protection and, and these type of things. I think the deniable asset 
is something that was understood that could work. I don't know how it works today because, you know, Prigozhin is an influencer now, for better or worse, and, and we know what he's up to and, and we know what he's saying. So I think from the outset, it is probable that they were set up as a deniable asset, but I think it's highly likely that it turned after Syria to be, and, and we can see the movements in Mozambique, in, in Car, and these type of places where it was mainly regime protection. And then in Madagascar, it was influencing elections and also regime protection, you know, and then in turn, they will get paid in, you know, resources and, and contracts like that. So I think it has become uh, a more of a deniable asset, but I think it's still a form now today, it's a form of aggressive foreign policy, Russian aggressive foreign policy. So I think they didn't maybe start out that way, but they definitely are today. As you know, we've talked about this. There are other countries that are fielding similar organizations that are somewhat state-linked. So we, we know, for example, Sadat in Turkey was involved in Libya, as well as uh, the uh, uh, Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict and in northern Syria. So we know that it's now being seen more and more as a, as a way to go forward, right? So yeah, fascinating, and 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 I think that's probable that they started that way, and likely, or highly likely now, that they are a deniable asset, even though Prigozhin is it being very open and honest about it. But that's just the way of the conflict right now, and the way of the internet. Lastly, I would want to ask you. I know you read for a living. And I think many of the guests that we have on do, because many are analysts. Do you have any cultural recommendations? Is there anything that you're reading or want to read that you would that you could uh, yeah, recommend? So honestly, I would say in general, if you're looking into a phenomena from a country that you're not familiar with, do elementary reading from what is done from the outside. So what Western experts are saying, and then go to the first people reporting. Uh, whether it's through translated copies or through, you know, talks where they're talking in English, see what the people on the ground who are reporting these phenomenons first are saying and identify how much of a disconnect there is between those two. Because I found there's a massive one between Russian-Ukrainian analysts and Western analysts. For example, on the topic of Prigozhin especially, in, the, in Russia and in Ukraine, for like those that aren't obviously in the Putinist camp, it was understood straight away that Prigozhin was not as powerful as he was portraying himself to be. And that was because they knew the way that the political system worked in that country. And they knew the dynamics at play. And speaking to people who are from these regions is not just something that's recommended. It's pretty much essential for if you're going to understand the little dynamics that make phenomenons kind of occur in the way that they do. Without that, you're not really going to get a good base of stuff. I would also say as well, there are really good, when it comes to Russia stuff, there are really good English and American experts. For example, Michael O'Fowl, before this, the war in Ukraine, I thought was pretty solid on this stuff. Mark Galetti was pretty good. Jade McGlynn. Uh, these are people who mainly make comments on Russian society rather than, say, topics okay. we're talking about. But if you're going to look at anything Russia-related and you're not new and you're not familiar with the region... I would say at least starting out with these people is a pretty 
good way to get acclimated with the sort of actors you'll be dealing with and the sort of dynamics you'll be dealing with societally in these countries. So yeah, that's sort of my uh, recommendations, really. Any non-work-related recommendations? What are you watching? What are you listening to? Or what are you reading a podcast or whatever? Any guilty pleasures? I'm pretty bad at switching off from uh, Russia-Ukraine stuff, but uh, I do dabble <laughs> into like reading about psychology. Give us a title. Which, what are you reading right now? So right now, again, this is going to sound like I don't leave the desk. I'm reading On War by Clausewitz right now. All right. Because uh, I'm trying to understand military political stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I'm a sucker for dramas, thrillers, Scandinavian thrillers, Nordic thrillers are, okay. I think, underrated. And I did do music production. Not very good at it, but I did do it. And I would say I'm also just very interested in... This is a weird one, psychedelic substance stuff in terms of research around that. Um, because obviously, since mm. I think research got closed down in America because there was ethics problems, it's been a bit of a closed book, but now that sort of research is opening up again. And I think the way that sort of stuff just, uh, like shapes realities, the treatments that have been successfully pursued with those sort of things, I'm sort of interested about that sort of stuff. I'm interested in people, so psychology how people's minds work what alters that it's pretty fascinating to me so uh yeah but nothing too exciting going on i'm not uh doing extreme sports of any sorts or anything i do have a martial arts background but uh that's all right about the summation of it so yeah okay alec thank you so much for for coming and and, and giving us insight in an often under reported side of the ukraine conflict and and perhaps you know conflicts to come in the future. And I think that's very interesting for our, for our listeners and for everybody that made it this far. And I wanted to say thank you guys because the support has been overwhelming. The one thing I would ask of everybody listening to the podcast, if you're listening on Apple, Spotify, we are on YouTube to subscribe, give us feedback, give us ratings. If we deserve it, give us five-star ratings, guys, because it helps more people find us, helps us grow. You know, there's no sponsors, there's no ads, you know, so you might as well help us out with that and, and we can keep on growing and we can keep on supporting analysts and, and researchers and, and anybody interested really in what's going on in the world of intelligence, in the world of research and in the world of geopolitics. And I would add to that also for, for anybody that's interested in these topics that, that Alec has mentioned, Alec is also writing for us so if you're interested in this work you know go to the website greatdynamics.com and if you want to receive intelligence or if you want to like communicate with our analysts become a subscriber you know and then become a secret or a top secret subscriber because that supports what we do offline and uh, it keeps us growing and uh, Alec again thank you so much for being here man thank you for having me it's uh, been a pleasure